Well, today uh, we are going to be looking at the book of Genesis. Uh, The book of Genesis chapter 1, probably the easiest Bible verse I've ever asked you guys to find. (laughs) Uh, Starting at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to be beginning a new series uh, this morning, looking through the book of Genesis. And we're not going to be going chapter by chapter through the book, uh, at least not in this sort of a setting. But we're going to be uh, walking along sort of... Uh, taking stops along the way, looking at this big picture narrative uh, that we find through the book of Genesis. And uh, so today, I think it's fitting that as we begin this new series, we begin at the beginning with the book of Genesis chapter 1. And I think I'm going to read the whole passage. Would that be okay with you guys? Great. Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening And there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters, and, call, he call, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing uh, with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. 
God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray, church. Holy Spirit, we ask here in your presence that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here this morning would be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as I already said, we're beginning a new series uh, today, going through the book of Genesis, making uh, stops along the way, catching the big picture narrative of this great story. Genesis is one of my favorite books of the whole Bible. Um, There's just lots of great stuff that's packed into here, and we're going to be unpacking some of those things as we're moving along. But today we're beginning with this beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. As I was reading it, uh, today, you know, sometimes when you, when you read the scripture out loud, you, 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 you start hearing things and, and seeing things in a way that you might not have yesterday when you read it, right? And as I was reading today, I was just thinking, wow, this is such a beautiful passage of scripture. It's so well organized and everything, and it, and it really captures the point of the majesty of God. But, but we're beginning today looking at uh, this this passage of scripture. And I want to ask, I know you guys always pray for me, and I appreciate that. Today, I'm afraid that I have... It's a message that's a bit more personal for me. So I would help it if we could have a bit more extra prayer, extra prayer on behalf of your, uh, your pastor here. <laughs> That God helps me get through this. But here's the, here's the main point that I want us to grasp today um, when we're looking at Genesis chapter 1. 
And it might sound a little counterintuitive at first, so stay with me. But the logistics of creation is not the most significant point of Genesis chapter 1. The logistics of creation is not the most significant point of Genesis chapter 1. The most significant thing that's taught by Genesis chapter 1 is the purpose behind creation. The most significant thing that's taught in Genesis chapter 1 is the purpose behind creation. In other words, Genesis 1 does not speak so much as to how God created as it speaks to why God created. And that's important because I don't want us to miss the rich theological meaning that lies behind this great text. And so to get us there, to get us to that point, I think it's helpful for us to ask this question What is it that Genesis chapter 1 is actually trying to claim? What would have been the author's original intent here? And more importantly, what does God want us to see today through this beautiful text? What does God want us to learn through these author's words? It was the Old Testament scholar, Dr. John Walton, who said this. The Bible was written for us, but the Bible was not written to us. The Bible was written for us, but the Bible was not written to us. Therefore, we cannot simply look at the words of Scripture with our own assumptions and ideas. We have to at least attempt to put on the cultural assumptions and cultural ideas of the culture in which this text was written. Why? Because cultures change and worldviews shift. So therefore, you cannot ascribe our modern understanding of the universe onto this text without doing damage to it. Because they did not think in the ways that we think. Does that mean that they were wrong? No. Of course not. Not at all. It just means that the language which is used to convey the message and the principles behind the text... The language and ideas that were used are more foreign to us than we would like to believe. And so we have to do a little bit more work to really understand what's going on. Now there's a reason that I stress this point so much. (laughs) Because what we have seen in the last hundred years or so, it really didn't arise until about a hundred years ago. But there's a big debate surrounding this passage within, within the church and without the church. Some have even gone so far as to call it a culture war. But you know, I really think we should stop using Genesis 1 in that way. To cause a war. Because really we're only doing further damage to our faith and this beloved text by using it in a manner which it was never intended to be used. Church, this is so important to me. (laughs) Because I have had friends who had walked away from the faith because of this debate. I've had friends who won't even consider Jesus Christ because of this debate. And to me, that's unacceptable. We're turning people away from the church over something that ultimately doesn't matter. And we're justifying it by misusing God's holy word. We cannot put our post-scientific revolution mindset onto this ancient text because Genesis 1 was never meant to function in that way. It was never meant to function as a scientific textbook in the way that we think of when we hear that term. Because there's a greater point to this message. 
There's there's a deeper theological meaning behind this passage that tells us something true and something beautiful about who our God is. We learn something beautiful about the God who we worship every week (laughs) through this passage. And I don't want us to miss that. But here's the point that I'm really getting at here. It doesn't really matter how God created the universe. Because nothing will ever change the fact that he did. And you know, actually, as an aside, I think the majority of modern scientific research actually supports a Christian worldview that says there is a creator. And I don't, I think that's great. I think we should celebrate that. But that's all an aside, because here's the point that really makes all the difference for us. Here's the question that we really need to answer. Why would God create? What's the point behind our existence? What's the purpose of this world? Why would God go through all of this trouble? What is the meaning behind all of this matter that we see here today? And I think those are the questions that is answered by Genesis chapter 1. If I could borrow an illustration from Dr. Walton, he says that sometimes when he invites students over to his home, they'll ask him questions about his home. And he says that there's two ways that he can answer these sorts of questions. He says he could start with a detailed account of the process of building the house, how they brought in all the materials, how they did the wiring, how they raised the, or how, how they put the cabinets in, how they hung the lighting, all of those things. He calls this the house story, the house story. But Dr. Walton says when someone is asking questions about his home, They don't really care about the house story. What they want to know is the home story. How did his family come to make this place their family home? How did they bring order to the place in such a way that it functions as a place that they are glad to call their home? Here's the point. Genesis 1 is not a house story. Genesis 1 is a home story. God is bringing order from chaos. He's bringing form to that which is formless. He's preparing a home for which, in which he can live in relationship with us, his creation. This is what's so profound about Genesis 1, not because it tells a story that's contrary to that of science, but because it shows us, it shows us that there is a meaning to be found behind everything that we see here today. There is a purpose behind creation. All creation points To us living in perfect relationship with our God, our creator. It points to us thriving in abundant life as we experience true rest with our God. And so, I think that's enough beating around the bush. What what does Genesis 1 actually tell us? (laughs) Well, as I've already stated multiple times, I think more than anything it tells us why God created. See... Our God did not create because he was missing something, as if he was incomplete in some way. But also, our God did not create in order to prove himself to someone else, as if he needed to establish himself as the highest God, right? In fact, I think that more than anything is what's most striking about this this text when we compare it to other similar ancient Near Eastern texts. Our God, in our creation story, 
There's no cosmic battle between deities. Our God does not have to break another God in half to create the waters. He does not have to destroy another God in order to create the universe. In Genesis chapter 1, God is free. He's independent. He's already complete within himself. And yet he creates all that we see here today. And so that's why I say the question that we should be asking is not how, but why. Why would he do that? The answer, I think, is simple, really. God created out of the overflow of his love. God created for us so that he could live in relationship with us. Do you see how profound that is? God created for us so that he could live with us, so that we could be in perfect relationship with him. That seems to be the end goal when we read all of scripture, right? And so that's when we come to this beautiful picture of the home being established. On day one, God creates the function of time. Days two and three, God creates the space in which his creatures uh, can live. And then on days four through six, we see the parallels of the first three days with day four, the lights in the sky, day five, fish in the, fish in the sea, birds in the air, and then day six, animals of the ground and humanity made in God's own image. And then finally, on the seventh day, after everything had been established and God saw that everything was able to serve its purpose as our home everything he saw was very good, God himself took up residence within creation. He came to live with us because God's goal is living with us. And the means toward that end was creating order out of chaos. Friends, this is the point behind the first chapter of Genesis. And I hope that you're beginning to see that it's actually a work of the devil's irony that we have made this passage out to be fuel for the disunity of the church. Because from the very beginning, God has desired to bring order to our world so that we could live in unity with our God and with our neighbor. And as people who are created in the image of God, we are supposed to join in with God in this creative work of bringing order from the chaos. That's what, when we talk about being made in the image of God, it doesn't mean that God has a human face. It it doesn't mean that, that, that God physically looks like us. It means that we were made to reflect God. We were made to accomplish the work of God, to share in the, the nature of God by doing the kinds of things that God does. And whatever else this might be, it certainly includes the creative act of caring for creation. It means joining in on the act of bringing order from the chaos. This is what is meant by God when he says to those first humans, fill the earth and subdue it. He's saying join in on the ordering of creation and caring for this home that God has built for us. But you know, we really don't have to look very far before we see our failure to live up to that calling, do we? Because just two chapters later, in Genesis chapter 3, we read the account of the fall of humanity. The first time in which we abandoned God's authority and instead believed the lie that we can be our own source of order. 
amidst the chaos. And the result, of course, is that sin entered into the world and we have become distant from God. See, church, the greatest loss of the fall is not the loss of paradise. The greatest loss of the fall is the loss of God's presence. It's the breaking of our relationship with God, the breaking of our relationship with each other, and the breaking of our relationship with all creation. The result of the fall is disorder and chaos, which prevents us from truly resting in God's presence and truly finding peace without fear. And so Genesis chapter 1 is not just the account of creation, but it is the defining context of everything that follows. It is the home story that tells us why we, why we were created, why this world was created, and how it was originally intended to function. It was all intended to point us towards a unified relationship between God and humanity. But we have taken this great gift, this beautiful gift, and we've abused it such that God's original intent, his original order, his original design cannot be found unless God himself comes to redeem it. This is the tragedy of Genesis. And so where does that leave us today? Well, early Christians began gathering on Sundays uh, in addition to their observance of Seventh-day Sabbath uh, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is, is a practice, of course, that still continues today. That's why we meet on Sundays to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, they understood that this new event was a powerful sign that God was about to do something amazing he was beginning the work of recreation. He was beginning the work of reordering this world to be the home that it was originally intended to be. And therefore, the early church writers uh, began referring to Sunday in the, the second and third century. They began referring to Sunday as the eighth day of creation, signifying the beginning of God's new creative work. And the author Lawrence Stuckey summarizes uh, the early way of marking time like this. He writes, In six days God created the physical world, and on the seventh day he rested. But in the humiliation exaltation of Jesus, God inaugurated a new creation in Christ, thus constituting the eighth day of creation. So what's the point here? What am I trying to get at? Well, if God brought order to creation once before, as he did in Genesis chapter 1, if God has prepared a home for us once before in which we can dwell in perfect relationship with him, then in Christ we are assured that he will do it again. And in fact, it has already begun. Friends, we are living in the eighth day. See, God's goal has always been to live in relationship with humanity. That is what we learned from Genesis chapter 1. God desires to share a home with us. And even though we exist in a world that's filled with chaos and disorder and disunity, we can be assured that God is at work to restore this broken world. Now, here's the good news. God has not and God will not give up. Well, I still haven't answered the question of what we are supposed to do with this. 
Well, the first thing that I pray happens, I hope that you, I hope you find as much hope from these great truths as I, as I have found. <laughs> because, you know, the, the truth is that these past few weeks have, they've been extremely difficult weeks for me. I know I'm not alone there. And by saying that, I don't intend to make myself the center of attention because, I mean, truly, nothing that has happened in the past few weeks is about me. But I say that so that you guys know where I'm coming from right now. Specifically, a few weeks ago, our nation, our nation learned of an extreme injustice in which two white men shot and killed Ahmad Arbery, a black man who was just out on a jog. You know, I'm about the same age as Ahmad. And yet when I go on a run, nobody grabs their guns to chase me down in their pickup truck. This was an act of violent racism. And it's an experience that our black brothers and sisters are all too familiar with in our day. See, those two white men saw Ahmad jogging and assumed him to be both guilty and dangerous, not because he was, but because he was a black man running through a white neighborhood. Church, what kind of world do we live in where such evil and hatred is not only tolerated, but it's common? This is not the world that God created. And then while we were still grieving over the murder of Ahmad, we learned of another violently racist act. Another video surfaced of a white police officer kneeling on the neck of George Floyd, an unarmed black man who was handcuffed and face, ground on, face down on the ground. And for nearly eight minutes, George Floyd pleaded with the officer, saying that he could not breathe, begging him to just put him in the police car. And yet, they did nothing. They refused to provide him care, and the result is that George Floyd died. This was a breaking point for our nation. I have to be honest with you. I've really struggled with all of this. Not because I'm, I don't know how I'm supposed to respond to this. Because right? no matter how you spin it, these two events, which by the way are just two among millions in America's 400 year history of racial injustice. These two events, no matter how you spin it, they're evil and they should never be tolerated. But the reason for my struggle was more introspective. Because church, I'm not ignorant to the fact of who I am and who I represent. I'm a white evangelical man who pastors mostly white evangelicals. And regardless of what I say I stand for or, 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 or what I might say, 
my classification as a white evangelical holds a certain meaning. And it's not because the culture doesn't understand us. It's not because the culture is just lost and only if they found Jesus, then they would be able to get it right. It's because for so long we have perpetuated the mistake of Genesis chapter 3. We have put ourselves first. We've tried to create order all by ourselves. We've abandoned God's peace in order to fabricate our own. We've abandoned God's justice in pursuit of our own. See, church, it, it really bothers me that we would rather protect our assets than speak out against racial injustice. It really bothers me that we take the Second Amendment more seriously than we take the Beatitudes. And it really bothers me that we think that we're living in paradise when the reality is that we are Cain smashing a rock over the head of Abel. The blood of our brothers is crying out from the ground and yet we're ignoring it. It really bothers me. We need to change. We need to change. But we cannot change until we recognize what we are doing. And we are not living in accordance with Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, we learn that God brings order to the chaos so that we can live in relationship with Him. And He gives us one calling, which is to join in with Him in the cultivation of creation toward that end. But we've instead created our own rules. And our actions have shown that we don't really want to live in relationship with our neighbors. And church, if we can't live in relationship with our brothers and sisters, then how can we ever expect to live in relationship with our God? I said hope. I said I had hope. So where's my hope? And here's where I find hope this morning. You and I are here. You and I are here this morning. We are gathered for worship, bearing our hearts open to our Creator. God has brought us here as proof that He has not given up. He is still at work to reorder our crooked hearts so that we can live in relationship with our neighbors. Because, friends, Jesus came to change our hearts. He came to remove evil and hatred and to bring us home. And by his resurrection, we've been assured that God has begun a new creative work. We've been given the chance to return to him, to pursue once again his peace and his justice. And God is still whispering to us, reminding us of our calling as people made in his image. Church, it is past time that we return to him. And friend, here's the good news. No matter where we are now, no matter where we are now, where we've been, God wants to live in relationship with us. And the best news is that we don't have to do anything before we come back to him. We don't have to get all our paperwork in order, get our life together. All we have to do is come home and God's going to take care of the rest. Church, I don't know about you, but I want nothing more 
than to live in a Genesis chapter 1 world. But that cannot happen until we stop insisting on making our own way. God wants to live in relationship with us. He's prepared for us a beautiful home to share with him. And so friends, let's repent and let's come home. We're going to close our service with, with a song that I think is fitting. We've sang it once before, or a couple times before. I know it's been a while, um, but it's called Kyrie eleison. And that's a Greek word which simply means Christ have mercy. And for where we're at in our world, and the things that we are experiencing as a culture, this simple prayer, I think, is exactly what we Church, would you join me in singing Christ have mercy?
alone this week, go in the mercy of God. Because in times of sorrow and struggle, the mercy of God is the only place where we can exist. So go now in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.